0: welcome back today we are in revelation chapter 11 we're going to be looking at the two witnesses and the seventh trumpet it's a really really fun passage to dive into there's a load of rabbit holes but i'm going to try and keep it brief for you brief and concise give you what you need to know um i'm sorry if there's a little background buzz in this episode my fridge is deciding to be really loud and uh, i live in a tiny home so i can't run away from it but i hope it doesn't distract you too much and let's get on with today's episode my name is megan and here i talk about the bible i spend some time reading through commentaries and studying passages and then chat through here about what i've learned so you can learn that info on the go doing your cleaning while you work and i really hope this just feels like grabbing a coffee with me and doing a deep dive into scripture together let's get on with today's episode So, Revelation 11, um, we are going to go through this passage in little sections. So we'll look at a few verses, and then I'll chat about it, and then we'll look at a little bit more. There's a lot going on, and um, I think this passage is one of the ones that has the most difference of opinion, maybe? Maybe not the most... There's quite a strong claim for Revelation, isn't it? There's a lot of different opinions about Revelation. But specifically this passage and about the two witnesses is something that is really um, grabbed onto. Um, and so if you type into YouTube, for example, you get all sorts of videos about who these two people could be. And uh, I'm sure some of them are very scripturally Grounded, you know. I'm sure some of them are legitimate um, readings, but but even just looking at the titles, some of them are very, um, very sensational. I guess very much um, trying to use this passage to fit into one's own narrative or like political persuasion or, or whatever. And uh, hopefully today, from going through this passage, you'll just really kind of know this passage better um, and understand some of the main interpretations of it. So then when you come up against these interpretations and opinions that people have, you know, you, you can just ask them some questions and say, well, does that fit? Does that actually fit with what the text is saying and with the references that John is making in this section because as we've seen before in this book there's a ton of references to other parts of the bible that give us a load of helpful context so let's get into that today and we'll start in verses one to two let me read verse one for you then i was given a measuring rod like a staff and i was told rise and measure the temple of god and the altar and those who worship there let's just start here Measure the temple, this command that John is given. And if you've read some of the Old Testament, it's probably reminding you of times in the Old Testament where prophets were also told to measure the temple, specifically Ezekiel and also in Zechariah, um, Ezekiel 40, Zechariah 2, if you want to go and check those out for some background knowledge. But in the last section that we looked at last time, Revelation 10, we talked about how John's kind of being given this scroll and and all these all these experiences he's having is classic kind of prophet commissioning language from the old testament he's been given this responsibility as a prophet to to go out and to talk about god's judgment and and you know the fact it's going to bring um this this woe but also this glorious kingdom that's going to come we talked about that last time and so this measuring of the temple then seems to be linked to that prophetic commission that has been given to John. This is tying what is going on in this passage and what what what's happening with John to the tradition of the Old Testament prophets and also just into God's God's plans. It's saying that John is part of this um part of this story where God is speaking into the world. Um measuring the temple as well. I it says in the IVP commentary the the one with context by Kina. it says that measuring the temple is also like a form of praise of worship it's kind of saying like wow this temple is so glorious um because it's it's it, he's measuring all the details of it It's like this is amazing praise god um another question though i think even just talking about this we're talking about the temple you might be asking well what which temple is this is this a heavenly temple? Is this an earthly temple? Is this the temple from before 70 AD, where the temple was destroyed? Is it after that, is it talking about a future physical temple? Like What what temple is this? And that's a very, very valid question that is debated in this passage. It is debated about what temple John is referring to here. If this is taken to be the earthly temple, Uh, Some people argue that this would date Revelation. It would give us an idea of when it was written to being before 70 AD. Because in 70 AD, the the temple in Jerusalem that was there when Jesus was alive was completely destroyed. Uh, It's a very significant date. Um, So it would have been dated before then. John would have been writing before then. So some people argue that this is evidence of that dating. Um, However, later on in the passage, and, and we'll get to this soon um in verse 19 john is starts talking about a heavenly temple so a lot of people will say no no this is talking about a heavenly temple kind of um like the ultimate version of the temple that the earthly temple is just a copy of um and john is measuring this heavenly temple there's um another option as well and it's that this temple um, is actually representing the people of God. And Tom Wright suggests this, um, and we see it, don't we, in other parts of the Bible where it talks about us being living stones, Christ being the cornerstone, we are living stones. We are the the blocks that make up the temple, the, the people of God as the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Together we make up the temple of God. So he suggests that actually this is representing, theologically, um, the body of christ he's measuring he's sort of measuring and glorifying god for the way that he's used people to be his temple um and that the the one the kind of the section that remains represents the faithful remnant that, that god is saving those who are faithful to god and persevere um that's been prophesied throughout the whole bible and i think it's up to you which interpretation you take here have a look at um, the sources I link in the description, have a read of other people that, that you respect, um, and see what you think. I think Tom Wright's interpretation here works, especially with what we are about to read. Um, but again, that depends on on how you read that section. But those are kind of three answers to the question of what temple is this. And um, they're all okay. Like this is a a secondary point this isn't about how we get saved or anything and I think all these interpretations can work in the text depending on how you're deciding to read it my persuasion is my own because I just think it works in the genre of the book best but let me know what you think um head over to my Instagram comment on my post about this podcast let me know what you think it would be great to chat so verse two then um John is told do not measure the court outside the temple leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months we'll get onto the 42 months in a minute but i kind of just mentioned the trampling there when i spoke about tom wright's interpretation of this as being um those that aren't in the remnant um the outer courts were the ones that the the gentiles were allowed in in the physical temple so I mean we're going to talk soon about kingdoms and and the, the the battle of kingdoms and the earthly kingdom and and the kingdom of God. I think it's just relating to this here. It's that theme we keep picking up. There are those who will not repent um and will not turn to Jesus and the the, the consequences of that are in God's judgment. Okay, so let's read verse 3 and then we'll talk about the 42 months. So verse 3 says and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So that's the same amount of time, 42 months and 1260 days. This is the same, that that many days is, is 42 months. Um, so it's talking about the same period of time. This is a significant number. So if you remember right back to the beginning of this series, we talked about the genres of Revelation. There's into three a letter of prophecy and apocalypse. Um this is something that is a staple of apocalyptic literature. Numbers mean stuff. Like it's not um just a physical time. There's there's another meaning here. Now it doesn't mean we can just ascribe whatever meaning we think works to the number. That that's not what it means. But what it means is looking at other places it's used in the Bible, realizing the meanings that it has there and then applying it to this passage and where this has meaning is in Daniel Daniel talks about a period of time um, that matches this period of time here's a little extract from Craig Keener's commentary to explain this a bit better he says symbolic numbers were standard fare for apocalyptic texts although 1260 days refers to the great tribulation of Daniel Revelation apparently reapplies it as a general symbol for final tribulation to the whole course of the present age. Daniel's own numbers were a reapplication of Jeremiah, Daniel 9, 2 and 24, if you want to check it out. And some other apocalyptic writers also described other periods of tribulation symbolically as 1260 days to characterise the kind rather than the length of time they described. So that's important. This number characterises a time of tribulation. The The original hearers of this, if they were Jewish, if they knew their Old Testament, that's what they would think when they heard that amount of time. Ah, a time of tribulation. That's what they were expecting. And that's what we see. You can go into depth here with all the calendars and and the theory about the numbers and how it all works out. There's so much, like, incredible stuff with numbers in the Bible. I'm useless with it because (laughs) I'm terrible with numbers. Um, I'm pretty sure I've got dyscalculia, which is like dyslexia with numbers. I genuinely my brain just doesn't work that way so I'm not going to try and explain all of that to you but it is very interesting and I'd recommend um, checking out Michael Heiser's resource on this chapter if you're interested in all of that he talks about uh, different like solar and lunar calendars that were used at this time and how which one they used could relate to how they kind of calculated this time period and it involves the Passover and has a lot of theological depth so check out michael heiser if you're interested in all all the numbers around this but um, i just i just can't do it i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry but i hope what we see here is this is representing a time of tribulation uh however we calculate it that is the clear meaning of of what god is saying and that is is mirrored in the fact that he says they are going to be in sackcloth which represents mourning when people are in mourning they used to wear sackcloth um So he's saying this isn't going to be a a joyful time. These people are going to prophesy in the midst of tribulation and of persecution and in a time that feels like a time of mourning. So why two witnesses? Who are these two witnesses? Um, Firstly to say the reason there's two witnesses is because that is the minimum number required to validate a truth claim according to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 and 19 Verse fifteen, if you wanna look it up. But you need two witnesses to validate a truth claim in that law, which makes sense, doesn't it? You need two people to say, Yes, this is actually right and then there's there's more um legitimacy. Legitimacy? Legit Is that right? I don't know. But you know what I'm trying to say. There's there's more weight than they're they're believable because two people have both said the same thing um and so there's two of them because that law is there it's saying these two prophets there they are saying the same thing they're not contradicting each other and that means we can um believe it's from god i suppose it's a way of testing isn't it um to make sure it's not just some one wacky person that's going off on their own thing these people are in sync and they are listening to god they have been given authority by god here so i'm going to read verses 4 through two thirteen, and we'll learn some more about these witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth and if anyone would harm them fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, and conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified." For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies, refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The first question you might have is why are they called olive trees, and why are they called lampstands? Let me read an extract from Thomas and Macchia's commentary on Revelation because I think the way that they put it is just really really helpful. So they say the mention of these items would remind readers of Zechariah 4, where two olive trees, olive trees, sorry, I'm really struggling to say olive trees today. I've got a bit of a cold, I'm sorry. Where two olive trees stand on either side of the central lampstand, which has seven lamps on it. There, two branches of the olive, two olive trees, olive trees, are connected to golden pipes, through which the oil is poured out. Both the word of the Lord spoken to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirits says the Lord of hosts. And the identification of these two olive branches as the two anointed who stand before the face of the whole earth in 4.14 would clearly assist readers in discerning that these two prophetic witnesses are spirit-anointed prophets. This identity is underscored when the witnesses are described as the two lampstands. Other dimensions of the meaning of the lampstands would also be present. Earlier, the resurrected Jesus identifies the seven golden lampstands in the midst of which he stands as the seven churches. While in the inaugural vision of heaven, seven lampstands of fire are located before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Such previous associations indicate that in the description of the two prophetic witnesses in eleven four there is a convergence of the churches, the spirit, and these witnesses. In these two prophetic witnesses, there thus appears to be convergence of the activity of Jesus, the prophetic ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ongoing witness of the churches we thus have reference to the prophetic spirit inspired ministry of the church itself we've got two two um two thuses it's it's very fancy that one obviously fancy commentary but the point is we have this old testament reference going on here Zechariah And also there's references within Revelation itself, um, lampstands, we've seen them represent churches and we've seen them represent the Spirit of God. And so the point that this commentary is making is that these prophetic witnesses are a kind of combination of these things. And this is important um, when we consider who these witnesses actually are. As I said at the beginning, there is a whole load of interpretations of who these people are. But the most the most kind of common and, and respected interpretations, there's, there's a few. So some people might say it's Moses and Elijah making a reappearance, as kind of was thought would happen in the end times in a Jewish tradition. Um, others have suggested it's Sarababel and Joshua, who are the people that are actually sort of being referred to in Zechariah in that passage it's referring back to Other people say that maybe this is um, some apostles in the church um, or another interpretation which I find most convincing on this is that this is a representation of the church in completion and this isn't a new idea early church fathers thought this and some of them suggested that each of the prophets represented different principles within the church maybe one represents the law and one represents prophecy or or something like that in the expositors bible commentary alan johnson uh, makes a really great point he says that since opinion varies so greatly at this point it may be wise not to be dogmatic about any one view and he's totally right this is one of those things that is very much um open to interpretation again solid biblical interpretation we can't just go off on one here but it is open there there are different interpretations it's one of those things with a mystery around it however he goes on to talk about the argument he finds most persuasive and i think i agree with him uh, just to throw in my two cents i think this makes sense especially if you take tom wright's interpretation of the temple at the beginning being the human temple of the body of christ uh, let, let me let me read from this commentary to you so he's talking about somebody called Minia um, who presents this argument and he's saying he finds that particularly persuasive so there's a bit of a chain given on here But this is what it says the two witnesses represent those in the church who are specifically called, like John to bear a prophetic witness to Christ during the whole age of the church they also represent those prophets who will be martyred by the beast Indications that they are representative of many individuals, and not just two, are that 1. They are never seen as individuals, but do everything together. They prophesy together, suffer together, and are killed together, are raised together and ascend together. And all this is hardly possible for two individuals. 2. The beast makes war on them, which is strange if they are merely two individuals. 3. People throughout the whole world view their deaths Something quite impossible if only two individuals are involved. Four, they are described as two lamps, a figure applied in chapters one and two to local churches compromised of many individuals. And then he goes on to mention the sackcloth and he says that God Himself will appoint or give power to them, um, which would encourage the church to persevere, even in the face of strong opposition and this is the theme we see again and again and again in revelation don't we patient endurance patient endurance um remaining faithful even amidst suffering and persecution and if you read the new testament pick a new testament letter it's very very clear that suffering and persecution aren't just in the end times but we should expect this as part of our life as christians because we're going out into a dark world that the enemy has a grip on with truth with light he's not gonna like that now he who's in us is more powerful than he that is in the world jesus has already won we have the authority of god on our side we have the truth on our side but that doesn't mean that there won't be resistance to that we will experience suffering we will experience persecution if we are truly representing god um evil hates good the lies hate truth there is a resistance and so i just think that this argument makes a lot of sense in the context of the genre of revelation and also just the the theme of it the messages of it i think this this reading this interpretation really makes sense um you might disagree with me again let me know i'd love i'd love to hear from you i'd love to hear your arguments so we see these witnesses being persecuted in the world and and we also see their responses and how god gives them this these weird powers of fire and blood their water turning to blood and plagues and you might recognize those things and again they're deliberate references to the stories of the prophets in the old testament of elijah calling down fire is elijah isn't it a lot elisha i always get those two confused but calling down fire the way whichever one of them it was um and 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 moses And the things that god did through moses and the miracles that he saw to stand up to pharaoh and showed him the power of god um but these these prophets are killed they are killed by the world and the world thinks it's one however then they are resurrected it's the story of jesus isn't it these people must be in christ because (laughs) the same thing happens they are they are mimicking jesus's example which is our greatest honor as christians they are persecuted they are they are actually killed but they are resurrected again they are they are taken to be with jesus and and the judgment that comes out of that for those who didn't listen to them those who didn't repent but all of this is for the glory of god that's made very clear all of this glorifies god as the one true king not the kings of this world and the beast is mentioned in this passage um we will get to him soon we're nearly at that section where it goes into more detail about the beast so we will we will dive into that then but for now all you need to know is is it's kind of the evil that opposes god it's satan it's the the um the powers of this world are backed by satan again we'll get into it but they they can't defeat these these witnesses to God, these these prophetic witnesses to God and the truth of Jesus, they can't defeat them, even if they think that they have, and they rejoice in it. It shall not be true. God will be glorified. Let's move on from the two witnesses. Then, um, verse fourteen we have another woe. Let's have a look at the woe. Verse fourteen says, "The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come." There's only three woes. We've already had one. This is the second. So assume it you could assume that what's happened since the first woe up till now is the second woe that kind of stuff was involved in the second woe uh the woes are a bit i haven't found much on the woes but 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 that's probably what it is also um it's looking ahead to the third woe now we're really looking ahead to jesus coming back things being complete like it's speeding up isn't it it feels like the narrative is just speeding up and speeding up and we see that right now in the seventh trumpet so let's read that section so verses 15 to 19 then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The seventh trumpet is announcing the new kingdom of God, and victory over the kingdoms of the earth that are trying to mimic the kingdom of God, but are evil and twisted. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus is reigning and will reign forever. And we see this hymn of praise that reminds us of the throne room scene earlier in Revelation. But now they are saying it's here. The kingdom is here. They're praising God. It's going to be forever. This is is it. This is the kingdom. It's come. It's final. And the Ark of the Covenant can be seen. In In the temple, the Ark of the Covenant it represents god's dwelling place doesn't it the place of his presence if you think back to the time in the wilderness where they they carried that um the ark of the covenant god's presence it can be seen it used to be behind a curtain in the temple this is the heavenly temple so either this ark of the covenant is the sort of the one in heaven that the earthly one kind of mimics or it's talking about jesus maybe um if this is heavenly temple that is referring to the body of Christ. Maybe it's talking about Jesus as the as the um the the one that brings <laughs> the new covenant. He's sort of the one that brings the presence of God in the new covenant. Either way, it's seen. It's no longer hidden. It c- it could be seen by all and, and these theophanic um theophany elements we've talked about that before, haven't we? That the earthquake and and the hail, um shows the kind of how much of a grand revelation this is god god is breaking out god's presence is breaking out into the world and it it seems like this should be it doesn't it this seems like the final thing and in a way it kind of is but the book isn't done yet so why is that well what we're going to get into next week is sort of a bit of a flashback I guess, giving us a bit of backstory. Thomas and Mackie put it like this. They say, The next major subsection forms an interlude of sorts telling the story of redemptive history in cosmic perspective. We're gonna be looking at that next time about the woman in the sky and, and the beast and Satan. It's kind of giving us a backstory. Of of what God has done and how He's saved through Jesus and how it leads up to this point. But from that heavenly perspective, the, the kind of spiritual background, I suppose. So I'll see you then to dive into that. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you this week. Stay faithful, stay perseverant, have that patient endurance. I pray God will bless you with that boldness to have that patient endurance against persecution and suffering that you may face, remember you have such a hope in Jesus and his coming kingdom. much for joining me for today's podcast if you have five minutes to leave a review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on that would be really really helpful and it would help more people like us who might enjoy studying the bible to find the podcast and to join us in our journey if you'd like to support me in making this podcast financially, you can use the buy me a coffee link that is in the show notes to just donate a little bit towards making these resources. You can also follow me over on Instagram at Bible with Megan or Oneword word, where I update everything that's going on and have content on there as well. So I really look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Bible with Megan podcast.